The title of the message is God's Work Delayed. I find it interesting, last chapter, you had all of these enemies come out. Uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, chapter 4, down in verse 7, you have the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashtadites. And so they're all coming against the work, whether they're ridiculing it, mocking it, um, trying to keep the nation of Israel from doing what God had called them to do. And so you get to Nehemiah chapter 5, and you would think last week we saw, you know, in one hand they had a, a shovel to be able to dig and to do the work. In the other hand, they had some type of weapon to be able to defend from the enemy, and yet the work was being done. Maybe not the most efficient way to do work, maybe not the, the, the best way to do it, but nonetheless, you saw that the enemy was there and they were able to um, continue to move on in the things of the Lord. As opposed to, to this chapter, no mention of the enemy, and yet we're going to see, as, as the, the title even suggests, right, God's work is going to be delayed. And so what the enemy can't do from the outside, maybe sometimes he does from the inside through depression and through uh, just the internal mechanisms of our head and what's going on in our brains. And so may we be very careful to just see the subtleties of the enemy and what he does and how he works. And it's unfortunate when it comes from within your own brothers and sisters. That's kind of hard to stomach sometimes. But understand that it's a ploy of the enemy. It's something that the enemy wants to do. And so just as brothers and sisters have come against us to maybe inhibit the work of God in our own lives, uh, we've probably been used at times too to inhibit the, the life that God or the work that God wants to do in other people's lives. And so just an interesting dynamic as we're going through, uh, as I was reading and studying and even... Um, Listening to other messages, Pastor Chuck Smith, he goes through the book of Nehemiah and he'll cover like seven chapters in one sitting. And so it's very much more a survey of the book of Nehemiah. John Corson, he'll cover two to three chapters. And you know, I don't know if you've ever listened to John Corson, any of his messages, but he'll go an hour, 20 minutes, hour and 30 minutes, but he's covering two, three chapters. And so as I've been going through it, I think the Lord is really just doing something in my heart as, as I'm taking, you know, I'll, I'll go through as many chapters as the Lord wants me to, but I'm just finding such richness as I take one chapter at a time. And there's things that maybe are maybe internally personal for me that God is really uh, just showing me. And so I'm just stopping and really just getting into it. So Nehemiah chapter five this morning, God's work delayed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have access to... Uh, saints of old, Lord Ezra writing down and, and Nehemiah, uh, just the one who's called to, to oversee and even to govern the nation of Israel and, and just this project that you would have them to do. But it teaches us so much about ourselves and the work that you've called us to. And I pray, Father, that we would see uh, the subtlety of the enemy and ultimately that we would continue to put our hands to the plow and not look back, but recognize, Lord, that uh, you've called us to certain things. And so bless this time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, 
I was hoping your amen would be longer so I could take a drink of water. That's why I just threw it out there. Um, So we're going to see in the first few verses, verses 1 through 5, we're just going to see what's taking place and what's the situation for the nation of Israel. Verse 1 says, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. And so strife amongst God's people is the first thing that we see that's going to inhibit, delay this work of God. If you're thinking about it, you know, the nation of Israel just came out of Babylonian captivity and many of them went to the nation of Israel. They're there in Jerusalem. And the first thing they do is they begin to rebuild the temple that was in ruins. Nehemiah in the third of three waves of people coming out of Babylon, going back to Israel, he's in the third wave of individuals that would do that. But as these waves are coming, they're now trying to settle in the nation of Israel. And Nehemiah gets wind that the walls need to be rebuilt. Remember, I mentioned to you that God wants to do a work um, and the walls of our life, if you will. They could be definitely serving in the church and doing things in children's ministry and in women's ministry and men's ministry and just the married couple's ministry and just various things. But it very much also means that God wants to do a work inside of you. And that your own personalities is that something that God wants to be able to, to remedy and resurrect walls and, and build strength in areas where you're weak. And so I just find it interesting, this dynamic of the first thing is strife amongst God's people. You got to be careful because sometimes the enemy can keep from, keep us from the growth that God wants us to experience. But it's that very same strife that God wants to use to alert us to certain things. Verse two, for there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. So the nation of Israel coming back into the land, we see a population explosion. First, we see strife amongst God's people. Then we see a a population explosion. We are many. Verse three, there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. And so there was a drought, and the drought caused famine. Whose fault is the famine? It's nobody's fault. Sometimes circumstances just get the best of us. But it's not one thing. It's one thing piling upon another thing, piling upon another thing. And before you know it, you just see the situation here. Verses 4 and 5, there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. Is it not in our power to redeem them? For other men have our lands and our vineyards. I was reminded of Adam Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think that's what he called it. But at the top, he has five things that you need to build on one on top of the other to be able to uh, self-actualization is the top thing that he comes to. Um, it, he's an atheist psychologist, but I just find it interesting that, you know, he observing humanity and, and how people live. Um, before you can be all you can be, the very first need that you have at the bottom is food, water, 
and shelter. And so you're not going to be self-actualized. You're not going to be all you can be if you don't even know where your next meal's coming from. The enemy brought these, these people to a place by using their brothers and sisters to tax them, to overwhelm them, to burden them because the need was represented, right? They needed to eat. They're coming out of Babylon. They land back in Jerusalem, in Israel. And before you know it, they're buying their lands from them. They're, they're, they're just, they're taxing them too much. And the burden is great to the extent that with everything that's going on financially in their lives, they end up having to sell their kids into slavery just to be able to get a meal, just to be able to eat. And so the subtlety of the enemy, so you had strife amongst God's people in verse 1, population explosion in verse 2, famine in verse 3, extreme poverty through indebtedness. They were in slavery in verses 4 and 5. Notice now Nehemiah's Reaction in verse 6. And I find this interesting because the author of the book of Nehemiah is the prophet and the priest, Ezra. Ezra would write the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. In the Jewish Bible, it is one book. The book of Ezra is Nehemiah and Ezra combined together. In our Bible, it's separated as Ezra and Nehemiah. But Ezra is the author. And I see this chapter as Ezra is almost taking a page out of Nehemiah's diary, his personal journal, and he he puts it here for us so that we can see it. Verse 6 says, And I, speaking of Nehemiah, became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And so is all anger sinful? No. This is righteous anger in exodus i'm sorry in ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 the bible says be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your wrath and so nehemiah understands that through greed his own brothers and sisters in fact some of the leaders because he's going to talk to the priest and the and the other leaders later on in this chapter but Through some motivation, these people were more money hungry than they were in honoring God. And it caused them to take advantage of their brothers and their sisters to the extent that these people don't know what to do. And think about it. They still worked. They still heeded the call. Nehemiah came and said, hey guys, the wall's in ruins. The the rocks are in rubble. They've been burned to the ground. The temple has no protection How about we come and do the work of the Lord? Even in this condition, I find it amazing. They didn't make an excuse. Well, you don't, you you don't even understand how bad we have it. You don't, this is the first time we're hearing that they were being taken advantage of. And they don't even know what to do about it. And they're not complaining about it. They're just, this is their condition. And they're communicating it. And Nehemiah is now the governor. And, And he gets wind of it for the first time here. And he becomes angry. Verse 7, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. That word usury is another word for interest. And the Bible was clear for the nation of Israel and how they were supposed to 
give or lend money to their brothers and sisters in need. Let me read you two verses or two sections of verses. First, Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. Clearly, the Bible says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. And so if as a Jew, you saw a fellow Jew in need, for whatever reason, whatever the cause of their poverty was, you were to give them or lend them at no interest so that their needs could be met. That's not what was happening here. Exodus goes on to further explain, Exodus, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 38. If one of your brethren become poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. And so Nehemiah gets wind of the situation. He's angry, but then he almost takes a step back and he gets his bearings It says that he kind of just thought within himself and then he begins to speak and act. And I find that very wise as he just kind of models for us truth and love. And truth and love is what God has called us to. If you remember in the last chapter, we saw with all of the enemies of God, they were very critical in their spirit. And they were coming against the work of God, coming against the work of God, But now we see the opposite end of that being able to communicate truth to people to be done in love as we see Nehemiah doing it here. Moving on in verse 8 and 9. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? What is the motive here for the nation of Israel? Making money or what Nehemiah told them, fearing God? Should you not walk in the fear of our God, he said. In Leviticus 25, when we were usury it says take no usury or interest from him but fear your god verse 10 i also my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain please let us stop this usury restore now to them even this day their lands their vineyards their olive groves and their houses also a hundredth of the money and the grain the new wine and the oil that you have charged them So give them back their 12% that you were charging them is that hundredth percent. So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them and we will do as you say. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house 
and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. And so Nehemiah doesn't just stop at communicating what's wrong. He then suggests to them what they need to do, but and then he doesn't just stop there either. After he communicates what's wrong and lets them know what they should do, he then goes on to further hold them accountable to it. And so what an incredible leader. Not structured ministry guy, right? What was he? He was the king's cupbearer. Back in Babylon, he got wind that something was going on and he needed to address it. He goes to the king, petitions him for letters, for money, for permission to be able to go through all the kingdoms as he travels, to get lumber for the work that's needed. He's just a regular guy. And God had prospered him. God had blessed him to the point where he said, I didn't take anything that I had a right to take. I could have taken the governor's provision. He's the governor. I didn't. We're going to go on to see that he's going to give, not receive. He's one who is simply recognized that he's in a position of blessing to be a blessing. And just an incredible guy as you go through it. Amen. They all proclaim. So be it. What happens when we're not unified? God would have us to be unified as a body. God would have us to be of one mind, of one goal, of one objective, to see God's name glorified, to see God's kingdom moved further. It's, it's not about you or it's not about me. It's about him and what he desires to do in this world through us. And so as long as none of us is about us and we're all about him and what he desires to do, then we won't be schizophrenic in our thinking. What's that? One person thinking one thing, another person thinking an entirely different thing, and a whole nother group over here thinking something altogether different. We will be of one mind, God's mind, God's heart, God's objective, God's goals and his desires for you and me in this world. Without a single error by the enemy of God, enemies of God, the work can be delayed. And so may we be very careful for the internal things that are going on in our heart and in our minds. And may we make sure that it's not just about this tangible putting your hand to the plow work of the Lord, if you will. But the work of the Lord is so much more as he wants to work deep inside of you. He wants to give you a sound mind. He wants to give you a secure heart. And he wants to work on your soul. Remember when I first introduced this book of Nehemiah and I talked about how we can apply it and how we can do the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is not just the tangible things that need to be done in the sanctuary. That's a small aspect of the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is you, your heart, your mind, the things that trouble you, the things that demoralize you, the things that depress you, the things that hold you down. Trust me when I say that God is far more intent on that work in your life and in your heart than he is any work that he can do in the world. He can do everything that he's calling us to do. Far better, far greater than any of us can. I believe ministry in that sense is just God's excuse to get close to us. 
But God is more intent on you, your heart, your mind, your thinking process, all of that stuff. And he wants it remedied. He wants it repaired. He wants it fixed. He wants it whole. He wants it sound. He wants it healed. And so hopefully we're able to see that. We sometimes want to separate what we do with our money from our walk with God. We saw money was a big thing that the enemy was using in the life of these children, this nation of Israel here, these children of God. If we don't handle our money with the right heart and make financial decisions with an eye to eternity, we can make mistakes that will affect the work of God in our lives for years and years. And so may we take heed to our money and to what God would have us to be doing. Essential to handling our money with the right heart before God is being a giver. And Nehemiah models it for us here. He was in a position to be generous and he is that, a generous person. The New Testament tells us that our giving should be regular, thoughtful, proportional, and private. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. That it must be generous, freely given, and cheerful, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Money problems are rarely money problems. Money problems are an issue of the heart. And our perspective on what God would have us to be doing with our finances. Verse 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provision. So Nehemiah had a right to be able to receive the governor's provision. He said, no, I'm not, I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm not prideful, but why don't we use that money for something better? I can receive the provision. I don't need it. So he refused it. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took bread, uh, took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I do not, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared, prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. So when Nehemiah came in, he had recognized that God had placed him in a position to be able to not take, but give, and he gave. He gave daily. He gave regularly. And he gave with a heart. And what was his motivation? The fear of the Lord. And then just like a journal would read in the last verse, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Hey, God, I'm doing this by faith. I'm taking you at your word. I'm trusting that this is what you would have me to do. I have a right to take, 
but Lord, I want to give. So remember me, an eternal perspective. Nehemiah's motive for living is seen in verse 15. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Verse 9 said, should you not walk in the fear of our God? When we read Leviticus 25, 36, he reminded them, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God. The fear of the Lord. For the unbeliever, the fear of God is the fear of judgment, of the judgment of God and eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. Luke 12, 5. The Bible says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So Jesus is kind of letting us know who we should fear as opposed to fearing just the devil. The devil can destroy our bodies, but the Lord can destroy our bodies and cast our souls into hell. And he's saying that's who we should fear. In that sense, we don't fear the enemy. We fear the Lord. That's the unbeliever. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, the Bible declares it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the, en- that's the, uh, that's the unbeliever. To recognize that God has the power to cast their soul into hell. And to recognize that it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. If you have no covering For the believer, the fear of God is something much different. The believer's fear is a reverence of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 is a good description of this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This reverence in all is exactly what the fear of God means for the Christian. This is the motivating factor for us to surrender to the creator of the universe. Proverbs 1.7 declares, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Until we understand who God is and develop a reverential fear of him, we cannot have true wisdom. True wisdom comes only from understanding who God is and that he is holy, just, and righteous. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and verses 20 and 21 record. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, serve him, hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name, He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. The fear of God is the basis for our walking in his ways, serving him, and yes, loving him. The fear of God, this awe of God, we do not have a money problem. We do not have a pornography problem. We do not have a spending problem. We do not have a tongue problem. We have an awe of God problem. Whatever our sins are, it's a need to be able to get to know who God is and in his wonder, in his magnificence, in just the magnanimous God that he is, 
we begin to see where we fit in the scheme of those things. We begin to recognize that his love for us is truly the greatest thing that we could ever experience. His acceptance of us, his desires for us. And just to know that his power and his wonder are so great. And yet he knows our struggles. He is intimately acquainted with us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet he loves us. And yet he desires to commune with us, to continue to grow us up in the things, to mature us in the things of God. Fearing God means having such a reverence for him that it has a great impact on the way we live our lives. The fear of God is respecting him, obeying him, submitting to his discipline and worshiping him in awe. And so if you find yourself struggling, if you find yourself discombobulated, if you find yourself just in a place where, I just don't know sometimes, press into God. Press into God. Spend time with God. You can't cheat that. You're doing it or you're not doing it. Spend time alone with God. There's no substitute. Communicate. I was listening to a message where the pastor was talking about a 10-year depression that he had. And then he begins to enumerate things that he did. And he said, one of the greatest things that I ever did was I went on prayer walks. I didn't pray for the world. I didn't pray for government. I didn't pray for the needs of my family. I talked to God about the things that hurt me. I talked to God about me. I talked to him about the confusion that I have in my head. I talked to him about the things that were pressing down in my life. I would just go on prayer walks and I would talk to God about me. When you come into the presence of the Lord, you oftentimes find the very thing that you're needing or looking for. And it's not a nugget. It's not an answer. It's God. It's God. And that's where we find our hope. And that's where we find our strength. And that's where we find the the very things that we're looking for. And your circumstances may very well stay the exact same. But you got God in the midst of it. And so, encourage you that you wouldn't neglect your personal, private relationship with God. It's not a Sunday go to church thing. Sunday... Church is supposed to be a confirmation of your week. It's supposed to be, ha, yeah. Yeah, the Lord showed me that on Tuesday. All right, good looking out, Pastor. You must be studying. Cool. That's all. A confirmation of what God is already doing in your heart, of what God is already doing in your life. Life happens out there, right? We just come in here to be able to be encouraged. This is the hospital little band-aid whoop you needed a band-aid here let's put that on you there you go go on your way do life and so may we continue to recognize if you look at nehemiah's life coming out of being the cupbearer, out of babylon out of man he's living a pretty good life from the world's vantage point god had blessed him but he had blessed him because he was faithful but and then god called him and he called him out of that life and what did Now, Nehemiah do planted in Israel. He remained faithful to God. 
He had already proven that he could be faithful working in the king's palace. Now God just took that same faithfulness and said, hey, I'm going to raise you up to lead the nation of Israel at this short time. And he remained faithful. And his motivating factor was not wealth. It was not, I got to get more money. He had enough money. He knew what that looked like. It was the fear of the Lord. He reverenced God. He wanted to see God glorified, God's kingdom built, and he wanted to do his small part. And so hopefully as we go through the growing pains of what God is doing here at Calvary Chapel Living Water, as he's raising up individuals for the work of the ministry, individuals that would be faithful at home, faithful at work, faithful wherever they go, may we continue to recognize that, man, what a pattern. But I think for a lot of you guys, it starts with you. It starts with your soul, your emotions, your mind, your strength, your will. God wants to heal a lot of different things. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust that you are doing a work deep, deep within us. And I pray, Father, that we would participate with that. Lord, that we wouldn't shut you out, block you out, but allow you access into the deep recesses of the things you want to heal, the things you want to solidify, the things you want to change and transform, the things you want to create and make new. Pray that, Lord, we would participate with you in those things and give you access into the depth of the things that you're requiring from us for our well-being, Lord, for our health, for our own good. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.